Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, August 27th, we are starting a new series on Sharper Iron titled Majoring in Minors. We've spent over three months studying Jeremiah and Lamentations. Now we'll take the next two weeks to look at three minor prophets who have connections to the book of Jeremiah. We will begin today with the shortest book in the Old Testament, the book of Obadiah. In 21 verses, we will hear the Lord speak his judgment against the people of Edom and promise restoration for his people Israel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us the Reverend Dr. Paul Robbie. Dr. Robbie is retired professor of exegetical theology from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. He is currently a professor in biblical studies at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, and he is also the author of a commentary on Obadiah in the Anchor Bible Commentary Series. Dr. Robbie, welcome to Sharper Iron. It's good to be here, Pastor. Yeah, so it's a real privilege. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to, to get to talk to you about the book of Obadiah. I think you, you told me as we were chatting beforehand, it's the Rodney Dangerfield of the Old Testament. Why is that? Well, it's so short, uh, 21 verses, and uh, um, so it, it tends to just kind of get skipped over. That's right. It is, I, you know, as I was flipping to it in my Bible, it's between Amos and and Jonah, but it, it is easy to flip past it if you're not careful, only being 21 verses long. So we get a chance to, to dig into it this morning. And we've just come out of, again, as I mentioned, Jeremiah and Lamentations. And in the book of Jeremiah, now Jeremiah gives us tons of historical details. He starts by telling us who he is and when he was a prophet. And Obadiah, while we do get some historical details, he starts very simply, the vision of Obadiah, and then he jumps right in. So Tell us a little bit about Obadiah. Who is he? What do we know? What context should we place him in? Questions like that to get us started. Well, that's a great question, and you're quite right. The opening verse does not give us the historical information that other prophets give us. So we have to kind of try to infer from the contents of the book uh, when and where he was. Uh, and so that means this is, uh, to an extent, this is kind of guesswork. And uh, so we, we shouldn't get too worked up about it. Um, uh, various hypotheses have been proposed. Uh, I'll give you my, uh, what I think is the most plausible uh, place and time for Obadiah based on the uh, content of the book. So, uh he announces that God is going to come and uh, bring judgment upon Edom. Uh, Edom has been—he he condemns Edom for their anti-Judah behavior and anti-Jerusalem behavior. So it would be after a period during a period when Edom was against Judah, and. Uh, uh, but before a time when there was uh, some kind of destruction of Edom. Now, uh, he does give us verses that say, like, for instance, verse 16, 
that Jerusalem, the Jerusalemites, you know, suffered the punishment of God. So it would be a time after that. Um, uh, so then it's a question of, okay, what would be a time to place that? And what are some parallel passages? And in my mind, uh, the key parallel passages are the following. So maybe we can look at these. Okay. Uh, one is uh, in Lamentations 4. All right. So Lamentations 4, what, what verse? verse? Verse 22. All right. Lamentations 4.22 says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. So that verse means that uh, it, uh, Zion has already suffered, but uh, Edom has not suffered yet uh, the punishment. God is going to restore Zion and bring back the people from exile and then punish Edom. Uh, so uh, uh, that's one verse. Another verse is uh, Psalm 137. All right, Psalm 137. Which verse do we at want to the, look at there? At the uh, um, Psalm 137, verse 7. All right, Psalm 137, verse 7 says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So this is a time after Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon, and apparently the Edomites were uh, encouraging the Babylonians to do that. They wanted to uh, see Jerusalem destroyed, and uh, so I think that kind of puts us into the right period of time. So uh, I date Obadiah and a lot of others as well to uh, about to after the time when Judah— and Jerusalem were destroyed by Babylon. But before the uh, uh, campaign, uh, before Babylon campaigned against Edom. So uh, Babylon campaigned against Edom in 553 BC. So I take it that it's before then. And uh, Jerusalem was, uh, Judah was attacked uh, and destroyed in 587 BC. Uh, so I take it it's after that. So I locate Obadiah somewhere between 585 B.C. and 555 B.C., somewhere in that uh, in the early first half of the 6th century B.C. And uh, Obadiah then would be uh, condemning, God, uh, pronouncing God's judgment on Edom for their anti uh, Israel anti-Judah behavior and promising Israel's restoration. So with with that dating, and that, that makes good sense to me with those parallel passages, again, not being too dogmatic about it, recognizing that Obadiah himself doesn't tell us, but that, that certainly fits very well. With that kind of, of dating, how would Obadiah relate to the prophet we just finished studying, Jeremiah? Would he have been a contemporary? Any thoughts uh, on that? Yeah, I think Obadiah was a contemporary of Jeremiah toward the end of his ministry, and I think Obadiah made use of Jeremiah 49. Okay. Jeremiah 49, verse 7 and following, is Jeremiah's judgment against Edom. And when you study that passage, you see a lot of the wording 
is picked up by Obadiah as well. And you could say uh, they both worked with a common sense, uh, source. You could say uh, Jeremiah used Obadiah, or you could say Obadiah used Jeremiah. I think that's more likely. Uh, but there's a lot of overlap between Jeremiah 49 and Obadiah. Now, you, you've mentioned already some of the, the themes that are we are going to encounter here in the book of Obadiah. How should we, maybe we'll say this, how should we structure the book of Obadiah? How do we see it laid out? Okay, so basically uh, uh, the first 15 verses go together, and uh, there uh, Obadiah is pronouncing God's word of judgment to Edom. So Edom would be the textual audience. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're the uh, historical audience, although I like to think maybe Edomites uh, heard of Obadiah's message, but they're the textual audience. So uh, when it says you in verses uh, 1 to 15, the you is Edom. Every time the Bible has a pronoun, you always have to find what's the referent of that pronoun. So the you would be Edom. And then uh, in verse 16, it's it moves to a you plural. And I think that you plural would be the people of Judah who are suffering. They would be the same as the we in verse 1. Uh, so uh, I think Obadiah is, is talking to Israelites, but uh, the, the textual uh, audience in the first half is Edom. But then starting in 16 till the end? And then, and then, the, uh, then the, the end of it would be 16 to 21. So basically those would be the two halves. Uh, verse 16 is tied with verse 15, so it's hard to, uh, to make a rigid separation. Uh, but the, uh, the you in verse 16 is a you plural, and that's addressing the people of, uh, of Judah and Jerusalem. So that if you look at who's being spoken to, you have two different audiences, Edom and uh, people of Judah and Jerusalem. All right. So, so verses 1 to 15 addressed to the people of Edom as the you, verses 16 to 21 addressed to the people of Judah, the people of God as the you there. that we, We've said at the very beginning, you know, this is an often overlooked book. You obviously have written a commentary on it. So why, is, why are these 21 verses? What are some of the themes that we're going to encounter that make it a book that we shouldn't overlook? Well, so uh, one is we see uh, God's standard of judgment. It kind of illustrates that, and so we, we, we can talk about what, how does God judge sinners, and uh, we see what it means for God to bring just judgment to sinners. Uh, it's the, the, his judgment is not arbitrary. It's not just out of the blue. Uh, it makes, there's a logic to it. Another thing we're going to see is... Uh, uh, drinking the cup of wrath. It's a common metaphor, and Obadiah picks up on that in verse 16. Another theme is that there's salvation in Mount Zion. Uh, another theme is that God will restore Israel. And then uh, it ends on a real high note in verse 21 with the promise of the coming kingdom of God. So lots of, of biblical themes that are very important. We get a chance to look at those with you today. One more question by way of introduction, Dr. Robbie, and just to put this out there at the beginning, we, we know that the scriptures 
preach Christ to us. So how are we going to see Christ preached in the book of Obadiah? Well, so on the one hand, uh, when we talk about Christ taking the judgment of sinners on himself, we see what that judgment is like. Uh, Another thing is uh, 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 Christ is the new and greater temple, and where he is, that's where the new and greater Mount Zion is. So uh, with Christ, we're in we're in the new and greater Mount Zion, and we have salvation and refuge. Uh, when he talks about the restoration of Israel, um, uh, that, that we'll see that that can apply in two ways. And then when he talks about the kingdom of God, of course, Christ brought in the kingdom of God. Uh, when you read the Gospels, that's the, at the heart of Jesus's message. Uh, repent and believe for the gospel of the end time rule and reign of God has now ushered into history through the ministry of Jesus. So that promise of the kingdom of God is fulfilled through Jesus. All right. So all of that is going to, we're going to see this in the book of Obadiah. Dr. Robbie, that, that's pretty much what I wanted to cover in terms of introductory material. But are there any questions that I should have asked that I didn't any more material you need to bring out before we jump into the text? Well, so Obadiah, like other prophets, is in poetry, and so you have to. We have to get used to reading uh, poetry uh, line by line and noticing the the connections between the lines. Uh, Obadiah poetry likes to use a lot of imagery, so we'll pay attention to that imagery. Uh, you want to read it as it progresses. So kind of how does it progress from verse one to verse two to verse three to verse four? Uh, uh, so don't think of it as just kind of isolated one liners. There's a progression here and it kind of reaches that climax in verse 21 with the future kingdom of God. So uh, the goal of reading it is to kind of read it in a slow, careful way and see how it progresses and moves. Uh, poetry is meant to be read slowly and to be savored. Uh, it would be kind of uh, bizarre to try to speed read poetry. The, the whole idea of poetry is to enjoy the language and enjoy the, the imagery. So uh, uh, all the prophets are poets pretty much, and Obadiah is a good example. How far would you like me to read to get us started? Uh, okay, so read uh, uh, verses one to two. All right. Obadiah verses one and two. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. That's the first two verses of Obadiah. Dr. Robbie, what, what do we see in those verses? What do we need to pay attention to? Well, so it's, it's the vision of Obadiah. That vision means a prophetic vision. It's a pre- prophetic revelation from God that God gave to the prophet Obadiah. This was common in, uh, in ancient Israel. God would give his uh, visions to certain individuals, the prophets, and then those prophets would report those visions to uh, the people. Uh, and uh, and in the vision, the prophet would see things and he would hear hear things. Uh, okay, then 
it begins with Obadiah is functioning as God's mouthpiece. So God is going to speak through Obadiah. And uh, so the following is what the Lord God said. Now, the word Lord God in Hebrew is uh, literally the Lord Yahweh. Uh, and uh, when it puts God in capital letters, that's how English conveys that it's the Lord Yahweh. Um, so this is the God of ancient Israel. His, uh, the older generation used to pronounce it Jehovah, but we, we know it more likely it was pronounced Yahweh. Uh, and it's made up of four letters, Y-H-W-H. And uh, uh, so in the Old Testament, God had a proper name, Yahweh. And he's the Lord, the Lord Yahweh to Edom. So God has a judgment to Edom. Edom is going to be the you. Mm. Now, uh, we, back, we, we have kind of an interlude here, a parenthesis. We, namely we people of Judah and Jerusalem, have heard a report from Yahweh that an envoy, a messenger, has been sent among the nations, uh, gathering them, recruiting them to arise and let us go against her. Now, every time there's a pronoun, you always want to ask, what does that pronoun refer to? So what do you think the her refers to here? I'm thinking the her is rise, let us get against her, Edom. Yeah, exactly. So uh, this, the nations are being recruited to attack Edom. And the Obadiah uh, uh, is going to uh, now announce what's going to happen to Edom. And God then is the speaker in verse 2, and he's speaking to Edom. I will make you, Edom, small among the nations. So God is going to bring his judgment on the nation of Edom and uh, uh, reduce their significance and their size. And they, as a result, they will be greatly despised among the other nations. Hmm. So okay, now— Go ahead. Well, I'll just say, so the image here, to talk about the imagery of the poetry, the image here is almost like Edom is being surrounded by enemy armies, and the Lord is the one who has mustered these armies to surround Edom, and and in the middle of all these enemy armies, they are small and despised. Is that the, the picture that's being conveyed? Well, at the end of their attack, they'll end up small and despised okay. and decimated, and uh, but yeah. The, the nations are going to attack Edom, and the God of Israel is behind it. This right. is a common view in the Old Testament. God doesn't just operate with Israel. God operates with the other nations as well. He's kind of the commander-in-chief of all the nations and all their armies. And he's recruiting them, in this case, against uh, this one people, Edom. The Edomites lived, of course, southeast of the uh, Dead Sea. All right. How far should we read after, after in beginning uh, of verse 3 verses, now? Verses 3 to 4. All right. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. That's verses so, 3 and 4. So the Edomites live in the Edomite hills southeast of the Dead Sea, and uh, those hills get up to like 5,000, 6,000 feet. And in that part of the world, those are you know pretty high mountains. 
And uh, the Edomites are, feel self-secure. Uh, they're arrogant. Nobody's going to bring us down. Uh, they say in their heart, who will bring me down to the ground? We're very secure up in these mountains. In the Old Testament, of course, pride is always spoken of as being high up, the high and mighty. And uh, so Edomites are reflecting their pride and arrogance here. And then, and it's, and it's kind of humorous. The prophets are funny guys. Uh, so the Edomites are, this is a rhetorical question. Who will bring me down to the ground? Of course, you, there's no reply. Nobody will. But God answers their rhetorical question. It's kind of humorous. Uh, God says, oh, I got an answer for that. I'm going to bring you down. So, uh, uh, and God says, uh, you, you know, you live high in the cliffs. Even if you could build your, build your nest uh, like an eagle, even if you could set your nest among the stars, of course, even eagles can't do that. Uh, nevertheless, I will bring you down. So this is God's typical reaction to human arrogance. Uh, God brings the high and mighty down. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's his act of judgment. They, uh, uh, Luther has this great quote, God never looks up because there's nothing higher than God. God never looks straight because there's nothing uh, equal with God. God only looks down. And the lower down you are, the better he can see you. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. That's, is, is, does he write that on Obadiah? Because that, I mean, that's no, a fantastic I forget, comment. I, I know I forget where. But uh, it's that uh, human arrogance is always trying to make, is trying to lift ourselves up into heaven and make ourselves equal with God. Uh, and and uh, the prophets condemn this constantly, and God's response is to bring them down. Hmm. I mean, as I was reading that in preparation for our conversation, though, that language there reminded me a lot of, and this is a big biblical theme, particularly it comes up in my mind from the Magnificat. You know, Mary sings this way about God bringing down the mighty from their thrones, and that's precisely what the Lord's doing here to Edom. Exactly, exactly. And, and then it's kind of the reversal. So the high and mighty God brings down, and the lowly and nobodies God elevates and exalts. Mm. So it's it's a reversal. God exalts the lowly, and he brings down the high and mighty. Uh, we can read a little bit farther here before our break. Okay. How, how many more verses shall we go? Uh, so take verses uh, 5 to 7. All right. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed— would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. That's okay, verses 5 so through 7. So verse 5, he begins with these rhetorical questions. Normally, thieves do not take every breadcrumb in the house. They only take what they want. Normally, grape gatherers don't take every single grape. Uh, but unlike that, uh, Esau is going to be thoroughly ransacked uh, and thoroughly searched out. And uh, 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 uh so it's gonna. They're gonna experience a fate 
even worse than uh, being robbed. And then uh, who's going to do it? Verse 7, it's even going to be your allies, people who are relate, who are at peace with you. They're going to deceive you, Edom, and set an ambush for you. And you are, you're clueless about it. You don't have any understanding. Mm. So this is how uh, God is going to uh, ruin the nation of Edom. Uh, notice how in verse 6 he calls Edom Esau. The Edomites are the descendants of Esau. So that kind of uh, helps us understand another dimension. This is not just another nation out there. These are the brothers of, uh, of the descendants of Jacob, and they should have been on the side of their brothers, and in, instead they, uh, they became their enemies. With with this talk of you know the thieves plunderers and this is what a thief wouldn't even steal any everything but that's what's going to happen to you dear Edom, and and the allies are going to be involved in this is is even even more behind that ultimately the the thief who comes to plunder Edom is not just the allies but it's the Lord Himself. Well, the Lord is is engineering the whole thing here. I think the uh, the historical enemies are going to be. There are going to be, uh, you know, other nations. And if we're right in pointing it into the sixth century, that would be the Babylonians. Mm. Right. And so the Lord works through those nations to bring his judgment against Edom. And we're seeing how Obadiah is preaching about that. We're going to go ahead and take our break here on Sharper Iron. You're listening to to us here on KFO talking to Dr. Paul Robbie about the book of Obadiah. We will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, August 27th. We are studying the book of Obadiah with Dr. Paul Robbie, retired professor of exegetical theology from Concordia Seminary St. Louis and current professor of biblical studies at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix. Dr. Robbie, prior to the break, we talked through the first seven verses of the book of Obadiah. I'm going to read a little farther for us, verses 8 to 14 now. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. 
Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. That's Obadiah verses 8 to 14. So, uh, like I say, when uh, Judah and Jerusalem were being attacked by uh, Babylonians, the Edomites uh, joined in on the uh, attack. They uh, took advantage of Judah's uh, suffering and weakness. Uh, They gloated. uh, They they looted. and they even uh, stood at roads and cut off uh, Judah's fugitives and uh, sold them into slavery. They participated in a slave trade. So uh, they, they're, they're the descendants of Esau. They should have side with their, sided with their brother Jacob, but instead they uh, turned against them and uh, uh, joined the enemy. Um, and then he, he condemns them for doing this. He tells them to stop doing this, uh, those kind of commands. Uh, and notice uh, verse 10, it's because of the violence you did to your brother Jacob that you will suffer shame. So uh, uh, they're going, to, what they did to Judah is going to rebound on them. Uh, what they did to God's people rebounds back on the enemies. Of God's people, um, so uh, they were looting, and therefore, verse uh, verse five to six talks about how the Edomites will be looted. In other words, they'll they'll kind of get a dose of their own medicine. Uh, this is the uh, standard way of talking about judgment and the prophets. As you do to others, it's done back to you. That's a uh, uh, poetic justice. It's kind of a measure for measure. Mm. And uh, so they're going to be looted and they're going to become put to shame uh, when they. uh, uh, So it's it's uh, what what they did to Judah gets done back to them. Uh, God, when he brings judgment, it's not some strange, freakish thing out of nowhere. It's uh, it's what it's the person's actions rebound back on the person. Mm. The, uh, the uh, sinner uh, gets a taste of his own medicine. That's kind of the standard. And you see this throughout the prophets. It's summarized in uh, verse 15. We'll get to that. Any more comments on verses 8 through 14, this first part before we get to verse 15, which I think you said is the, that's the last part of the first section of Obadiah. That's right. So, uh, so, Edom is, is, uh, has been an enemy of God's people, and he condemns Edom. But uh, Edom is, is an example of all of the enemies of God's people. And so verse 15 kind of puts it into that bigger framework. So let's look at verse 15. All right. Verse 15 of Obadiah says this, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So this this is the day of the Lord. The prophets often talk about that. It's a day of judgment, a day of darkness and distress uh, and terror, uh, a terrible day when God brings judgment against all of the nations. Uh, uh, and in this picture, it's the nations who have been enemies of God's people. And then notice the standard. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds return back on your own head. It's kind of a rebound effect. 
So that's the standard. It's not unfair. It's perfectly fair. It's perfectly what uh, the wicked deserve. Uh, they deserve to taste their own medicine. Uh, their their deeds return back on their own head. There's nothing unfair about it. The, the punishment fits the crime. That's kind of the standard of judgment. Of course, that's not the gospel, but that's the law. And we have to understand the law uh, in its uh, clarity. And, and certainly is very clear there. As in verse 15, I think you said earlier that in verse 16, the you becomes plural, and we start talking about the, the nation of Judah there. But in verse 15, there still is that language of you have done it, it shall be done to you. But it is in the context of the day of the Lord coming upon all nations. So is that... It, it certainly seems as speaking to Edom, certainly, but is there a, a broader scope in mind already in verse 15 yeah. there? Well, that's right. Verse 15, the you is you singular. He's still talking to Edom. But Edom as a, as a, as a nation, as a, a, a Gentile nation that's against Israel. And uh, so what the judgment that Edom's going to suffer is, is paradigmatic uh, and emblematic of the judgment that all the nations will suffer on the day of the Lord. So the, the prophets are always talking, there's, there's this final judgment day. The New Testament picks that up again and re, reaffirms it. Jesus reaffirms it. Uh, uh, the, the new thing with the New Testament is that the judge will be Jesus himself, uh, who's coming to judge the living and the dead. So uh, this is part of, this is the basic uh, presupposition to the gospel, that there is a judgment day that we must all face. There's no way around it. It doesn't matter if you don't like it. We all have to face uh, our creator, maker, and judge. And uh, for those who are his enemies, it'll be a terrible, a terrible day. So in that sense, the day of the Lord that's here in Obadiah 15, I mean, it's certainly looking forward all the way to that to that last day, that day of the Lord. Is that the is that the only day of the Lord that's in mind here in Obadiah fifteen? Well, so the destruction of Edom would be kind of a preliminary uh, foretaste of that ultimate day of the Lord to come. Yeah, mm -hmm. and uh, and then what happened in the fulfillment is that that day of the Lord entered into history ahead of time on Good Friday. So that on Good Friday, we see the day of the Lord against Jesus in kind of the in place of all sinners. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, uh, he's coming again, like a, uh, on the last day, and that is the ultimate day of the Lord. Mm -hmm. So you might say that Edom experienced kind of a B.C. version of the day of the Lord. Good Friday and then the, the last day are kind of combined as the AD version of the day of the Lord. Let's let's move into to verse 16. Are we taking one verse at a time at this point? Uh, yeah, so you can do verse 16. All right. And, and I had to tell you, Pastor Clint Poppy, who handled the section on Edom in Jeremiah 49, he told me to make sure to have you talk about the cup of the Lord that we're approaching here. So I'm looking forward to this, Dr. Robbie. Uh, Obadiah 16 says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. 
So the, the first you there is you plural. It's referring back to the we up in verse 1. This would be the people of Jerusalem. And they, they drank the cup of God's wrath when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. And now that cup of God's wrath is going to uh, move out to the nations as well. Uh, this goes back to Jeremiah 25, which pictures Jeremiah as, as giving the nations the cup of wrath to drink, uh, beginning with Jerusalem. Uh, so it's a metaphor. It's picturing suffering under God's wrath as like getting drunk. And uh, they drink it and swallow and stagger and become as if they had never even existed. It's, 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 not, it's not normal drinking wine, but it's, the, uh, it's a metaphor for suffering the punishment of God's wrath. And the uh, Old Testament uses this metaphor quite a bit. Uh, I, I actually give it a long uh, treatment in my commentary on Obadiah. And this is the metaphor that's the basis for Jesus' statements in the, New Te- in the Gospels when he prays uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me. He's referring to the cup of wrath that he is about to drink. Uh, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And then he willingly uh, drinks the cup of wrath in the place of sinners. So it's, uh, it's the picture of Jesus suffering under the wrath of God in the place of sinners. Is, is Paul's language of the cup of blessing, when he speaks of the supper, is that a, a contrast to the cup of wrath? Yeah, it, you could picture it that way. Uh, you know, he's referring to the Lord's Supper, but it's uh, 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 Jesus took the cup of wrath so that we can have a cup of blessing. Yeah, there's kind of a, a, a reversal there. So let, let's move on to verse 17 here. So, so, ver- oh, go so verse 16 is yeah, picturing this judgment day, and all the nations who were enemies of, of God's people will suffer the wrath of God then on the final day. All right. And so then on in verse 17, we read, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. I, I noticed, and, and we'll see this, that word possess comes up several times in this last part of Obadiah. Right. So uh, uh, so we have to think spatially here, and the picture is there are two places, either in Zion or outside of Zion. Outside of Zion, the nations are those who suffer under the wrath of God. They're enemies of God's people. In Zion, there's salvation. In Zion, there's holiness. Outside of Zion, there's unholiness. So it's, it's kind of a spatial picture. And Zion, of course, is to be where God's presence is. God located his gracious, saving presence there in Zion. To be in the presence of God is to, is to enjoy eternal life. To be away from God's presence is uh, to suffer eternal death. So you got to think kind of spatially. Uh, this is a BC way of saying that in the church there's salvation, outside the church there's uh, you know damnation. Uh, uh, so it's it's uh, in Zion is where there is life, outside of Zion is death, and in Zion there's holiness, outside of Zion there's uh, wickedness. 
So it's kind of the BC way of saying uh, outside the church, there is no salvation. And, and Mount Zion particularly is, is the key here because that's where the temple is located. Is, is that being drawn on by Obadiah as well? That's right. So in the post-exilic period, the temple was rebuilt. And the temple, of course, is where God located his gracious presence uh, with and for his people. And uh, ultimately, then Christ becomes the new and greater temple. And where Christ is, there is the new Mount Zion. So we're starting to see some of those big themes come up and connections to Christ. I'll go ahead and read verse 18 for us as well. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. So, uh, uh, Notice how God is going to restore Israel, and that's both the north and the south. There'll be one Israel, one people of God. There'll be more than conquerors against their enemies. And uh, so it's a promise of what we would call in in the New Testament the church triumphant. Um, uh, And uh, uh, so now, you know, the church was suffering during this exilic period, but Obadiah, in a B.C. way, and B.C. language, announces the ultimate church triumphant. And he does it in a B.C. way, uh, but the fulfillment comes in an A.D. way. So it it comes with uh, uh, the church being triumphant over uh, sin, death, and the power of the devil. Hmm. Let's keep going here in in verse 19. And so you can read verses 19 to 20 together. Okay. All right, verses 19 and 20. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. That's verses 19 and 20 of Obadiah. So here he pictures the restoration of Israel. Remember, during the Babylonian period, they were they were dispersed uh, ultimately into all directions. But God, through the prophet, announces he will bring Israel back to its land. Uh, they'll regain the promised land, and even the exiles will participate. And uh, so this picture of God restoring Israel Um, he began to do it with the return from exile. Uh, They returned from exile several times in B.C. times. Um, But then I I say, I think you want to take it into the New Testament. And what did Jesus do during his earthly ministry? He he didn't do his, carry out his earthly ministry in Greece or Rome. He carried it out in Israel. And he said he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And so Jesus was the Messiah, and he was restoring Israel right there uh, uh, by giving them sight, uh, you know, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, the lame could walk, uh, even the dead could rise, uh, were rise. He was raising up the dead, and he was forgiving sins. So it began with Jesus during his public ministry, and I would maintain 
that it continues now for 2,000 years as the gospel goes out to Jewish people, many natural Israelites are being brought, are being restored, being brought back to God and to the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So we should, we should uh, 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 realize there are many Jewish believers in Jesus. This is, uh, the, you know, it doesn't get a lot of publicity, but there are many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, God doesn't give, you know, Romans, the gospel is the good news to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So God restores his people through the gospel. And uh, uh, the other prophets emphasize this will also include Gentiles. Obadiah doesn't emphasize that point. He's focused here more on, on Israel. Well, I think it, you know, it's, it strikes me that as he begins this this talk, as you said, in a BC way of the reality of the church, that you know, although the historical reality, assuming that we're we're right in placing him, you know, between the fall of Jerusalem and the fall of Edom, that historical reality really is talking about the exile of Judah. Here, Obadiah is broadening it to all of Israel. He's not just focused on Judah, but he's using language that refers to the the whole people of God, Israel, which I think, I mean, points again into that that New Testament reality of the church as you're describing it. Well, that's right. So it begins with, uh, like I say, to natural Israel and the uh, natural branches, but then engrafted in are also the alien branches, the Gentiles. And now this whole Israel, uh, uh, the whole church, is given the promise of this uh, ultimate promised land that we have ahead of us, namely the new heavens, new earth. So it's uh, the ultimate fulfillment is with uh, the whole people of God inheriting uh, the new heavens, new earth, the new kingdom of God. Let's take a look at the last verse of Obadiah. This is verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's the last verse of Obadiah. Right. So uh, he's picturing it as kind of a repeat of the period of the judges when there were deliverers who would deliver uh, when Israel was suffering and uh, they're going to rule. So Zion is going to rule over Esau and the other nations as well. So, again, this is uh, the the church is uh, the center. The Zion is the center of uh, God's rule. And in that last verse, the God of Israel uh, will bring in his end-time kingdom of God, the end-time rule and reign of God, uh, and uh, uh, and this is gospel, uh, that uh, no longer do the nations rule, but God will rule. Uh, and like I say, the fulfillment of that uh, is comes in two ways. One is the ultimate end-time, last-day, uh, kingly rule of God when Jesus returns again and says, enter into my kingdom. Uh, but that kingdom entered into history at a time through the uh, public ministry of Jesus so that uh, Jesus brought, ushered in the kingdom of God through the ministry. And it, and it continues through the preaching of the gospel. So the gospel continues to bring the kingdom of God to people. That that reference to the book of Judges, you know, that word saviors, as it's translated in the ESV, it surprises me a little bit because when I think about the book of Judges, I don't think of one of the golden eras for the people of God. There's, there's a lot of 
bad things that happen in the book of Judges, a lot of, of sin and rebellion. It's, it's that cycle. But what does strike me about that is that in contrast to the way the book of Judges ends, where there's no king and everybody's just doing what's right in his own eyes, this one has very clearly who's the king. It's the Lord. And I think that really you know, helps that reference to the book of Judges, while it may seem strange, well, here's the good news is that what was missing during that time, now it's there. The kingdom belongs to the Lord. Yes, that's very good. That's very good. Exactly. It's it's not simply a repeat of the period of the judges, but it's the the way it was supposed to be. <laughs> now, Dr. Robbie, we have about six minutes left on the morning, so a few opportunities to to reflect on the book as a whole, some of these these themes of, of biblical preaching, and again to connect those to to Christ for us. You you mentioned at the the get go some of those themes, how Christ takes the judgment on Himself. He's the new and greater temple. He's the restoration, and especially this preaching of the kingdom of God. Help us to make those connections again from the book of Obadiah to how Christ fulfills them, and particularly for us as Christians living in the 21st century. Well, so uh, uh, when we think of the work of Christ, we have to always think in both a now and a not yet. And so we talk about, you know, what he did 2,000 years ago during his earthly ministry. Uh, we also think about what he's the gifts he's giving us now through the gospel, through baptism, through the Lord's Supper. And then we also have to think about what is ahead when he comes again in glory. And uh, uh, so you, you want to always connect uh, the fulfillment with kind of all, all three angles, with uh, his public ministry 2,000 years ago, with what he continues to give us through the means of grace, and with what is to come when he comes again in glory. So so you can just kind of go through each theme and run it through those three angles. Uh, So one is the day of the Lord. On the one hand, that happened on Good Friday. Uh, On the other hand, you can say it happens every Sunday when uh, we get to celebrate it because of Good Friday. Christ took the wrath of God in our place so that the day of the Lord is a day of celebration for us. And ultimately, the day of the Lord is when he comes again in glory and this final judgment day. Or you can talk about uh, the cup of wrath how on Good Friday Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we don't we do not have to drink it. Instead we can drink the cup of blessing and enjoy the, the messianic banquet in the Lord's Supper and ultimately the end time feast that's ahead of us. Uh, uh, in Mount Zion there is salvation. So only in the presence of God is there salvation. Away from God is death and destruction. Uh, so uh, we rejoice in uh, in the uh, refuge that we have in the presence of Christ. Uh, where is Christ? Christ is there where the gospel is preached purely and baptism, and Lord's Supper are administered rightly. Uh, that's that's the A.D. Zion. So when we go to church on Sunday morning, we're going to Zion. We're going to the place where the Lord is, giving His gifts. And in that place is uh, salvation, and that place is a holy place. So we uh, 
we uh, we rejoice in the opportunity to go to church every Sunday. Um, uh, that's going to Zion, to the A.D. Zion, just like the ancient Israelites rejoiced in being able to go to the Temple of Solomon and the post-exilic temple. Um, uh, so, and uh, Israel will be restored. Uh, begins with... Uh, Christ himself being Israel reduced to one, and he went through death and resurrection. During his earthly ministry, he brought natural Israelites to himself. We always have to remember this. The first church was a Jewish church in Jerusalem. You know, the church is not some kind of Gentile thing. Um, uh, it, 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 it built on the foundation of the, apost the Jewish apostles, and now uh, uh, the church includes us Gentiles, and uh, we're part of God's Israel. So we have to think of ourselves that way. We're part of God's Israel, and the promises to Israel belong also to us because we belong to God's Israel. Um, and ultimately, God. Uh, so this, the promised land uh, is the promise also for us that on the last day we inherit the, the ultimate promised land, the new and greater uh, land of Canaan, the, uh, uh, you know, new heavens, new earth. So we are part of Israel, and we inherit the land on the last day, uh, and we enjoy the kingdom of God that Jesus ushered in. God, through his spirit, rules us now, gives us this blessing of forgiveness of sins and life eternal, and we look forward to uh, the consummation of this on the last day when the kingdom of God comes in all of its fullness. Yeah, so each one I would say you can kind of t see connected to the public ministry of Jesus 2,000 years ago, connected to the gifts that the gospel gives us now, and then uh, connected to the promise of when Jesus comes again in glory. That's, that's how I would work it. Dr. Paul Robbie is retired professor of exegetical theology from Concordia Seminary St. Louis, current professor of biblical studies at Grand Canyon University in Phoenix, Arizona, helping us today with the book of Obadiah. Dr. Robbie, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you very much. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week. <laughs>